We have one of the world's greatest filmmakers joining us on High Learning. Um, you guys have all consumed his content over a long career of making documentary films, making films. Jason, how long have you been at it? In the business, 25 years, but but making films of my own probably since like 06. 06, wow. Wow, wow. Um, you probably know him if you're a casual Johnny Come Lately to the career of Jason Heyer. Uh, from The Last Dance, which took the entire culture by storm, the whole world by storm, and has fostered some interesting relationships that haven't even yet <laughs> uh, settled. Some still some reverberation from that documentary. Um, and we appreciate everything that you gave us during COVID. But his latest foray, A Murder in Boston, oh, excuse me, Murder in Boston, is a fascinating wild and just ridiculous a ridiculously important ride into injustice social inequality uh, all based around one happening in Boston we have the director of that joining us today Jason how you doing man thank you for joining us on higher learning I'm great Ben thanks for having me okay let's talk about this let's talk about murder in Boston let's talk about because uh, we talked a little bit about this and you gave me the rundown about mm-hmm. it. We'll get to some breaking news about the documentary itself, which is just fantastic. It's why we make art. Uh, that's a tease for the audience to come back a little bit later. But you told me, we spoke uh, some weeks ago and you told me that with this story, what you wanted to do was put a social justice narrative into a true crime story. Most of the time when we talk about true crime, it kind of exists for the sake of itself. But with this, why don't you tell people what your documentary is about and why it was important for you to to talk about uh, an issue that's been so on the forefront of American culture in the last couple of years? Yeah. So the the documentary is about an infamous murder case that occurred in Boston in October of 1989. Um, a white couple, Chuck and Carol Stewart, were in Boston um, from the suburbs that night at a birthing class at Brigham and Women's Hospital, uh, right on the border of the Mission Hill neighborhood in Boston, which was one of the more dangerous neighborhoods in Boston at the time. Um, and there's this infamous phone call that he made. He had a car phone. This is pre-cell phones back then. So he had a car phone. He calls the cops 911 and says, I've been shot. My wife's been shot. He said, I don't know where we are. So for 13 minutes, they kept him on the line and they eventually found his location, which was in the corner of the Mission Hill projects. And according to him, a black man had carjacked them, pointed a gun at his head, told them to drive, drove them to a remote location or, or pointed them to a remote location, shot his wife, Carol, in the head, killing her almost instantly, shot him in the gut blowing out half of his intestines, took their belongings and ran into the projects. So there was a manhunt in Boston um, for the better part of 10 weeks to find the 5'10 to 6 foot thin black man with a raspy voice and an Adidas tracksuit with a, re- a black Adidas tracksuit with a red stripe. And hmm. they eventually got who they thought was their man and a guy named Willie Bennett, who was a career criminal from the Mission Hill area. And, um, Chuck eventually made it out of the hospital, fought for his life, made it out of the hospital after about eight weeks, uh, looked at a police lineup, picked Willie out of that lineup, 
And Willie was about to be indicted for the murder of Carol Stewart and her unborn son, Christopher, when Chuck then jumped off the Tobin Bridge and killed himself because his brother had gone to the police the night before and said it was all a hoax. There never was a black man. Chuck did this. He orchestrated it. I helped. And so that is the darkest chapter in a fraught racial history. Let, let's, let's put it euphemistically in Boston. Absolutely. Yeah. Certainly of my lifetime. Um, and I had always wondered, you know, I'm from Boston. I'm proud to be from there. Van, you know that I'm a, a Celtics, Celtics, Red Sox, Bruins, Patriots fan. Yes. But, but I'm ambivalent and conflicted. I, lo- I love you even so. <laughs> That's how tight we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been conflicted and a little bit ashamed when I go to other places, especially if mm-hmm. I'm talking to black people and, and, and say where I'm from, um, because we have that history and that reputation. So I've always been curious as to how we earn that reputation, whether it's still valid, what we've done to ameliorate that, if anything at all. Uh, and more specifically, why I believed this lie. I, along with the rest of the city of Boston, no one really questioned uh, whether or not Chuck was telling the truth. Even I remember being in school, I was in eighth grade at the time. And the teachers, the, the morning that he jumped, the news started to spread that Chuck Stewart had killed himself. And the teachers, I remember them saying, like this poor man, he couldn't take it anymore. The grief was just so mm. overwhelming. One of the reporters, Jack Harper, who's in the documentary, said that when they were at the docks that day and they were fishing Chuck's body out of the water, he was asking, is this grief or guilt? Like they still didn't know. There were mm. editors in the, in the Boston Globe newsroom who said, before we fan out and cover this thing, we have to decide or, or, or uh, uncover if this is grief or guilt. So to this day, if you watch the doc to this day, some of the, uh, some of the, the white um, people in power who were around back then still believe um, that, that Willie had something to do with this. They can't seem to wrap their head around the fact that this wasn't uh, anything but a monstrous act by a white man who knew that he could tell this one little lie and turn the entire city upside down and divert attention from himself and focus attention on this neighborhood that was otherwise innocent. Which is incredible that there's still people still maintaining or holding on to the same story um, that was initially or narrative that was initially pushed out there. I am from Texas. Never had, I'd never heard of this until I watched your documentary. Um, but I always knew that there was this stigma surrounding Boston and that it was not great for black people, but I never knew why. I didn't know the history of it. And I'm wondering for you, was it important because the way the documentary, obviously the documentary covers everything, but it focuses more on the history of uh, racism in Boston and it talks about the neighborhood and the people involved more than it talks about uh, the Stewarts. Was that intentional on your part? Um, Yes. If you could just explain that. Yes, it was. I don't, I don't care about Chuck Stewart. I don't care why he killed his wife. I don't care uh, to, to examine the reasons why he grew into this monstrous human being or, you know, early on, we had a whole scene where we, we went to Revere and we showed what Re- Revere was because Re- Revere doesn't have the greatest reputation as one of the suburbs in Boston that, that is uh, the most racist. Is, is Revere comes up when you have that discussion. So initially, I was thinking like, all right, I want to show people the kind of news he was consuming and the kind of culture he was growing up in to give him the idea to do this. But 
it didn't take a genius to do. He's not some diabolical genius. He's not a criminal mastermind. He, he's a guy who grew up in Boston and knew if you point at the black guy, all attention, the spotlight's going to go on the black guy. So I don't care about him. He's, he's disgusting. There are a lot of, um, disappointing, let's say figures in this story. And mm-hmm. after disgusting, some of the police, uh, the way they handle this and the way that they still maintain, uh, that Willie had something to do with it, I find disgusting. But Chuck was the most disgusting. What I cared about, the reason why I wanted to tell the story was to help the Mission Hill community and the, the Bennett family specifically to express the pain that had gone unexpressed properly for 34 years. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. The documentary is Murder in Boston documentary series. Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. It's on HBO. I didn't mention that. HBO is just the home of the great documentary. It really is. I mean, (laughs) me me and Bill were talking about this a little while ago. Like, uh, growing up, HBO had a chokehold on me. Not just just with some of the bigger docs, but the American American Undercover series. All that stuff. You remember that? You remember it. I know you liked it. Yeah. That's like a, this is a a pinch me moment for me because I grew up consuming all that we're, we're from the same generation i grew up watching mm-hmm. stuff so to see us get a doc on, on that monday night documentary slot that hbo has always had that that's a really cool thing i worked at, at hbo sports for seven years in the beginning of my career um but it was always it was always kind of annexed out from like the quote-unquote real hbo where they were doing sopranos and oz and things like that so mm-hmm. and they it's the best working relationship i've had with any executives at any network so far We've had a lot of good oh, wow. ones, some tough ones, but the HBO one, they immediately got it. We took this out. This was right in the wake of the last dance. So nothing was really going on still. Everybody was in lockdown. I vividly remember sitting in a freezing cold. It was a really cold October night. I was outside my apartment in, in New York and I was talking to some other distributors about the story. And we almost went to another platform which I won't say who that was, but they wanted to lean in more to the tawdry aspects. Rachel, you asked about like Chuck Stewart. They wanted to know more about the Stewart family, kind of the tropey stuff that a lot of true crime does, which is romanticizing the couple. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that Carol Stewart and her family don't deserve sympathy, but it's always, you know, demonizing the, the murderer, uh, uh, praising the, the, 
that that's the wrong word, but but making the victim look as sympathetic as possible and not really kind of peeling off that other layer. Some some do it, but but there's there's such a glut of it now that I don't think that all of them do it. This one, this was right in the wake. If you remember, uh, I should say to, to wrap that thought up, HBO immediately got it when I said I wanted to tell the story from the perspective of the black community in Boston and specifically the Bennetts. They immediately got it that this is mm. not the reasons why Chuck did this. And if there was another woman and if he wanted uh, insurance money, that's a footnote in my mind. And they agreed. So that's why we went with them and, and we were better for it. Um, but when we had that discussion, this was right in the wake of The Last Dance. The Last Dance had come out in April and May of 2020. And nothing Damn. was really going on. Like the, 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 it's almost four years ago now, but, but the world was still stopped down that fall. I think we had another wave coming in New York. So everything was shutting down. That's why I was sitting outside in the freezing cold having this meeting that I'd otherwise be having in a place like this. Um, and they said, are there other, I was having meetings with people saying, are there other stories that you want to tell? Cause up until that point, I'd largely done just sports stuff. And this was right in the wake of George Floyd and that summer of 2020. Um, all of that stuff was, was fresh in everybody's mind. And I remember watching all of that unfold, the protests and everything that summer and thinking like, there's nothing that epitomizes the discussion we're having nationally right now, like this Stewart case. Hmm. Just what, how I organized, how I and other white people who consider themselves liberal, progressive, not racist, how we organized the world and believed what was being told to us by news outlets. Remember, there weren't many. There's no Reddit threads back then. There's no Twitter. There's no TikTok. There's no, there's no conspiracy theorists that are, that, that are amplified. You get three networks at home, three, three affiliates, NBC, ABC, CBS, and two newspapers, The Globe and The Herald. And that was my entire, that's how we all consumed the information we consumed. And, and what every, they said was the truth. That's it. So yeah. every single one of those, those uh, outlets I've just mentioned we're beating the drum of like the search for this, the hunt is on for the killer. And how is Chuck doing in, in the hospital? And oh, the baby Christopher died 17 days after the murder. And that was a really sad thing. And, and you know, hindsight is 2020, but it just, you wonder like, how could we not have said like, it's always the husband, you know, it's always mm -hmm. the spouse, always the partner. So I was really interested in kind of looking in the mirror and, and having, um, frankly, white people in Boston look in a mirror and and try to unpack why we believed what we believed. On, it's interesting the response to uh, the documentary um, from people that I know that are from Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, the case is very famous. Yeah. I had never heard of it, but the case is very famous. There was some fear. Yeah. There was some fear of dragging the city, which is yeah. trying to turn the page on uh, its racial reputation or the culture of Boston through that again. The fear almost for some outweighed, hey, this is a very important time in the city's history and a microcosm for uh, racial injustice writ large. And we need to talk about this. It was a, it was a painful. It was a, I wonder what's going to happen type thing. I, 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 you know what I mean? Um, did you wrestle with that? Did you wrestle with at any point? This is over. This is done. Should I be doing this? 
I got a lot of gentle nudging and advice from people saying, why would you want to reopen that wound? Yeah. Um, and then it's funny, I was talking to interviewing Tito Jackson, who appears in the documentary, who's a city councilor, a former city councilor in Boston and now works in the mayor's office, grew up in Mission Hill, was, was a, around the same age as me, but he was being strip, strip searched and, and thrown against walls and thrown against cop cars, searching for the killer. He's a 13 year old kid. So he had anecdotal memories of what went on. But I said to him exactly what we just are discussing here. I said that a lot of people have said to me, why would you want to reopen that wound? And he said, well, I would say to the people who said that to you, for a lot of us, that wound is never closed. Mm. In mm. order to heal a wound that's been festering for 34 years like that, you have to dig all the pus and the gunk out of it. You have to disinfect that wound before it could even start to heal. And that's what you're doing with this documentary now is it's a painful process, but it's necessary in order to sew up that wound and let it start to heal. You have to revisit it. And I think that that it's one of the mistakes microcosmically in Boston we've made is not mm -hmm. addressing our past, but also nationally too. These stories need to be told. And, and even if, you know, we'll, we'll get to it a little later on, but, but Mayor Wu did make an apology yesterday, the mayor of Boston. And, you know, some of the criticism from the other side of the aisle is, well, she wasn't even around. She's from Chicago. She was minus four years old. It doesn't matter. It, what matters, even for people who weren't alive in Boston, they need to be educated about this. This is your city. This is your history. So appreciate what happened. It doesn't mean you're guilty. It doesn't mean that we're admonishing anybody. It's just appreciate what happened. And more importantly, appreciate the humanity and the pain of the people who suffered. That's what's the mm. most important is to acknowledge mm. them as human beings and they were wronged. It doesn't mean it doesn't take anything away from you to say, oh, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Why do you think that's so hard? <sighs> mm. Books and college courses have been taught about that. <laughs> Boston especially is provincial and proud of its Irish Catholic, Roman Catholic heritage. And there's a different level of otherness in Boston between between blacks and whites. I'm trying to choose my words carefully because this is so it's such a a, 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 a flammable subject, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of deep seated generational pride and deep seated generational ideas about others in Boston, where you look at a neighborhood and you say a white couple was shot, it's difficult for people of a certain age to wrap their head around. To this day, difficult for people to wrap their head around, well, a black person must have had something to do with it. Louis Dunn, who's mm -hmm. the cop in, in, in our documentary, his theory, which we didn't really have time to parse, is that Chuck must have known Willie Bennett. Willie Bennett must have been Chuck's drug dealer. And so Chuck must have, in the course of their drug dealings, asked mm -hmm. Willie Bennett to do this. There's no evidence that Chuck had a drug problem. In fact, anecdotally, his friends say he wasn't even that much of a drinker. There's no evidence that I think there was one misdemeanor charge that Willie Bennett was picked up on for drugs. I mean, let's be clear about this, too. Willie Bennett's no angel. Right. He's got a long mm -hmm. rap sheet and, and, sure. and his offenses were violent. But. That those those are irrelevant in this case. Mm. With what, 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 what 
we are examining in this case is not just what he was put through being thrown in jail and called a, a child killer and a lady killer and ended up spending 10, uh, 12 years in jail on a, on another case that they just happened to be holding him for while they were gathering evidence to indict him for this case. And that case was weak at best. And they never would have picked him up on that unless they were just looking for an excuse to know where he was. Billy Dunn in our documentary says, we just needed to make sure he wasn't going to flee to Canada. He says that's part of the process. Hmm. The most galling soundbite in the entire series to me is that it's part of the process. Well, the process is horribly flawed if that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This man for 12 years, whether he, he was an angel or not, was taken away from his family, was taken, had his freedom taken from him. And as we demonstrated in the doc, this is generational and the ripple effect lasts to this day. So to see what happened yesterday, um, it's a great start. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, I guess. It's a great start, but it's not a solution. I hope it's just the beginning. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. You could be doing anything this week, right? You've got work, errands, friends, and a whole lot of fun in between. That's why the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. I was going to ask you, and and knowing that the police officers that were involved with this in 1989 still were on the force all the way through, seeing um, that Detective Dunn still talk about it as if somehow it Willie Bennett was the person that was involved or the or that the police didn't do anything wrong is more of of his um take on it it makes me think and me being from not from Boston still knowing that there's this perception of Boston has Boston changed is there still this perception of um Black people being a certain way is the relationship still strained between black people and the police in Boston I I know that the apology came yesterday, which is wild after almost 35 years, but has anything changed? It's generational. And that's a very simple way to put it. We could discuss this for four hours if you guys have the time. But you can imagine the the demographic that still feels that way. Uh, I think that Dunn is is the he's the extreme example. And I, I regret that we couldn't compel more of those retired cops who are, who are actively involved in this case to participate in this doc. Because I didn't want for Billy Dunn to be the avatar, the representative for all of the Boston police, because he's the worst of the worst. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are still people like, if you go to his Facebook page and you see the, the filth that he is spewing on a daily basis, politically, and it's, it's racially tinged, um, and the people who are liking this and commenting on it, and if you go to their pages, there a lot of them are retired cops. And when you talk to some people of that age in Boston who aren't 
at least overtly racist, they still kind of wink and nudge. They call Billy Dunn the legend because he calls himself that. He was, mm. if you guys remember, uh, uh, Rachel, I don't know if you're a sports fan, Van, I know you are. Back when the, the Red Sox were, were, were good about 20 years ago, Papelbon was the reliever and there was this big fat cop who used to fist bump him every time he came out of the bullpen. That's yeah. done. Oh. That's done. Mm. So he was celebrating. He sang the national anthem at Fenway Park three months before this murder happened. Oh my gosh. He was celebrated <laughs> in Boston. He, he, was, he was one of the, like, he was, there was pride around Billy Dunn and, and people, you know, admired him. So, Why? You have to go back and ask those people. But to answer your question, I think that it's dying out, that those attitudes are dying off. And if you go to, you know, back when this happened in 89, if you went from South Boston into Mattapan or Dorchester, certain parts of Dorchester, Roxbury, Mission Hill, you would know if you were in Rosendale or Jamaica Plain. You could tell just by the way the buildings looked and the, 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 the demographics of the people, the skin tone of the people. You knew what neighborhood you were in. Those edges are softening in Boston now, mm. for better or worse. And, and it's mostly gentrification. But we interviewed Dart Adams and Howard Bryant in an apartment that was in South Boston. And both of them said, this is a neighborhood I, I was not allowed to come to for fear of mm. my safety when I was a kid. And now we're, mm. we're being interviewed in this and it's over a yoga studio and a coffee shop. Yeah. So a lot of the edges are blurring in the city. And also you have the people in power reflect the diversity of the city far more than they did 34 years ago. We've had two black police commissioners in the last 10 years. One of them, Michael Cox, was at the podium yesterday and gave a, a formal apology on behalf of the Boston police to the Bennett family and to Mission Hill. Um, and we have our first elected non-Irish, non-Italian, non-male mayor, uh, Mayor Michelle Wu. So Michelle Wu. the city has slowly been changing for the better. And as long as there's, you know, President Obama used to talk about politics being an oil tanker and you can only, you can only turn it that much at one time and then you have to mm -hmm. hand it off to somebody else. So I do feel that that oil tanker is turning but it's still not nearly as turned as, as some of the other major cities because we had such a long way to go. These are generations of damage was done, but, but I am optimistic that Boston is turning a corner. Um, I'll just have you know that Jonathan Papelbaum was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, so you're welcome for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what we keep talking around, something I want to mention, is that uh, because of this documentary, because of... Uh, and once again, the documentary is Murder in Boston. Um, uh, oh, I'm writing this terrible. Uh, race, Ramp ramp race Rampage. There's, there's three episodes. It's the roots of the problem. Mm -hmm. So one, the Rampage, Searching for the Killer in episode two, and then the Reckoning once we realize what happened in episode three. Murder in Boston, Roots Rampage, and Reckoning. That's on HBO right now. Uh, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu uh, on behalf of the Boston Police Department, like you said, apologized to the family of the man who was wrongly accused here. Mm -hmm. Jason, your work brought about uh, and at least an acknowledgement, and we'll see where this goes, mm -hmm. an acknowledgement of a wrong that had been festering uh, for a generation, for more than a generation in Boston. That just happened. What was it like for you to see that come about? 
I should mention that the Globe partnered with us on this too. So the Boston Globe did a huge eight-part print series. Mm-hmm. It was wonderfully written. Um, and then they also have a podcast called Murder in Boston, which is complimentary to our documentary. So so we got to to partner with them and they're the reigning Pulitzer Prize winners for investigative journalism. So they were part of this too. But it was surreal to see that. I never thought, I'm like, I'm I'm cynical because I've lived in that city and and good and bad, I've heard it all um, and seen it all. So I never thought that they would get a formal public apology the way they did yesterday. What I thought they would do, the, the, the best case scenario was that some they would call the Bennett family and a couple of representatives of the Mission Hill community to City Hall and have a luncheon maybe and say, hey, listen, we want to acknowledge your pain. And they would parse their words somehow and, and you know, maybe take a picture and, and it would be on page 19 of, of the paper the next day. I thought that until 72 hours ago. Mm. I had heard they were going to do this thing on the 20th because quite frankly, I, I would have liked to, I would have stood in the back because this is not my day. It, it's their day, but I would have mm-hmm. liked just to be there for this because you do sports documentaries. What, what's the most impact that can have? It, you entertain people and maybe people have a different opinion of Scotty Pippen. Than Scotty Pippen. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it had an impact. <laughs> um, it had a huge impact. This is a different kind of impact. And so right. for all of us to have worked on this film and gotten to know the people involved, mm. this, this wasn't as expected. The Bennett family and, and Derek Jackson, who was a, a key character in this, um, who was a friend of Joey's, Joey Bennett's at the time. This wasn't a thing where we just called her up them up and said, meet us at this place and, and we're going to ask you questions. Like this was repeated visits to them long before cameras rolled because I'm a white kid or white guy, 47 years old, but I was a white kid at the time from Newton, Massachusetts, which might be the whitest place on earth. So when they hear that this guy is going to be the one telling their story, I understand that there's going to be skepticism. Right. So it yeah. took it took work and it should have taken work for them to trust me that I was going to tell this story responsibly and that they could be safe in saying what they wanted to say. And I, I was going to, to use it the right way. And as we told the story, so it was, I just thought back to that, that, that night, that cold night in October, when I was talking to the HBO executives and thinking like that was th- over three years ago. And now here we are. I thought again, even when they told me on Monday that they were going to do this on Wednesday, I thought, Oh, they'll do like, it's going to be in a room behind closed doors and they'll give them a private apology. And then they'll, they'll put out a press release and say that, Hey, we apologized and let's move on from this. Cause Mary, Wu, this is a, this is a ballsy political move. Like she, there's a, there's still, you can imagine the left and the right in Boston. There's a lot of, of infighting. She is, is under heavy fire recently. I don't know if you don't know Boston politics probably that well, but she had, um, a meeting, a, a dinner, an annual dinner of um, it's sorry, I'm, I'm trying to phrase it right, but it, it's it's elected people of color. I, I, I th- and everybody a, was everybody was black at the table and people went nuts. I saw it. Electeds of color, it was called. Now, <laughs> the important context there. So obviously anyone <laughs> against her is going to say, oh, Who named that. Uh, electeds of color. I don't know. That's why I was trying to choose my words carefully. I don't want to that we much. understand now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this came. So the reaction was, oh, 
the it's racist, okay. Yeah. The racist Mayor Wu, mm-hmm. uh, no whites allowed, Mayor Wu, blah, blah, blah. She's having this dinner. And now she's only doing this to cover up for, for that. First of all, this was planned long ago. When, when they saw advanced copies of this documentary, it was brought to their attention. I'm sure they saw the Globe talk to them too. So this was way before that firestorm happened. By the way, this, I guess it right, electeds of color dinner was happening for the last 10 years. This predated her. She was, mm-hmm. this was on her agenda. It was like, oh, I got to go to this thing. It got emailed to everyone. And then it was explained like, okay, if you're elected of non-color, you, you can't come to this. My point is this. It was a gutsy move on her part. And I admire her for doing this, that she doubled down and said, you know, she said, I am sorry. On behalf of the city of Boston, I am sorry for the pain that you went through. This was full-throated, like 100% all-in apology and acknowledgement of wrongdoing, which was mm. tremendously impressive for me. And then I said, up until even the morning of, I said, well, the cops aren't going to come to this because then right. there's election seasons and all that. Michael Cox, black commissioner of, of the Boston police, he was the second one to speak, got up there and apologized on behalf of the Boston police and said that this was racist. Like, mm. I was floored and tremendously happy, not just for the Bennett's, but for the city. I'm proud of the mm-hmm. city. That doesn't happen too often, especially in this context. But I'm proud of Boston right now for that. Once again, it's on HBO. I'm murdering Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. You guys, you got to go check it out. Check out it's all this so man's good. work. It's it, You're looking at the reason right now that Larsa Pippen and... <laughs> What I told Jace already, the you whole just had to. Pippin Jordan <laughs> love affair is it's because of Jason. It wouldn't have happened if not for Jason. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's a brilliant artist, and he's a connector of souls. Jason, before I let you go, I got to tell you one. <laughs> like I got to tell you one documentary you have to do. I know everybody tells you this. I know it's it's, but there's one you have to do. It's called The Slide. Okay. You have to do a documentary about that slide in Boston. (laughs) 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 You know, lucky he is that his gun didn't go off. That's where it starts. That's that's how it starts, Jason. That's how you start. No, you just play the audio of that guy, that poor guy. The best, my favorite part of that was his. Oh shit! When he landed on the, oh shit! But they had to close that slide van. I know. That's why I'm serious. I I want like like a like a 20 minute doc short. So many people were, were, were trying to recreate that slide and prove that they could do it the right way, that they closed the slide. It's ironically police state around that slide now. The kids of Boston are being robbed of one of the best slides robbed. in the East. Because that got, that's the funniest video of the And it's because so, of the police. It is. I mean, that back for, I don't even know. I mean, he was just trying to have fun. This is a lot more innocuous than um, 34 years ago. But that's how far we've come, is that now we're criticizing people coming down slides. So that's a good thing. All right. You guys can watch, and all three parts of the doc are on HBO right now. Um, you guys can watch them. You guys should watch them. And in addition to being something that is, you know, uh, lofty and very important, it's also incredibly well made and very entertaining. Yeah. Jason, 
uh, thank you for joining us on Higher Learning. And, you know, hopefully we'll have you back when you got something else cooking. I know you got always got a doc in the, in the works. Hopefully we'll have you back. When you and I go to Angola, we'll come back and we'll tell Rachel and everybody else about it because I want to do that story. Will we, you want to do I, Angola? There's a whole... He's, tell you about it. Yeah. Wow. It's a whole specific thing. Story, very specific. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant idea. And I hope we can bring it to life. We will bring it to life. And then we'll come back and have you. Put it in the universe right now. We're going to do this. We're going to do this, Doc. We're going to do this, Doc. All right, man. Thank you for joining us, brother. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. See you guys. Thank you.